so the series, as we have presented it, is essentially um, a series of cultural topics I requested from you, and uh, we're looking at them through the lens of, of sort of what is a faithful Christian response to, or what does the Bible say about how should we as Christians uh, address blank. And um, the list uh, is on, the, on uh, Facebook, I put it up there. And um, this first one that we're dealing with is mental illness or depression or anxiety. What does the Bible have to say for those of us who are in this state? And this is a, this is a common reality of mankind. And we start there. I mean, it's, I mean, it's summertime in cottage country, and uh, the sun is shining, and the barbecues are sizzling, and wealthy people are spending money in Halliburton, and they outnumber us four to one at least, and so the economy is booming, and this is the time when culture and everybody would say, you should be overflowing with joy and happiness. You're in the, one of the wealthiest nations in the world. You have safety. You have health care. You have everything else. It's the best time of year, and yet we know that even in this season, there are people and that there is an epidemic of despair that kind of lies underneath the joyfulness of it all and the happiness and the giddiness. And at some level, it almost seems frantic, the desire to appear happy. And according to the Canadian Mental Health Association, suicide is actually the second leading cause of death for Canadians between the ages of 10 and 24. And it accounts for 16% of deaths for those aged 16 to 44. And that just blew my mind when I read that. One out of every six deaths from 16 to 44 is by suicide. And that's the extreme of despair, isn't it? That's the extreme of anxiety and the extreme of depression. If we were just to sort of pull back our survey a little bit and just ask ourselves, let's not even talk about the the 16% that actually are depressed and anxious and despairing and ill to the point of suicide. Let's just talk about the people that are just before that. How big is that number at what point in your life? I mean, if virtually one out of five is driven to the point of despair to take their life, how many are just struggling day to day with anxiety and depression that paralyzes them? And sadness and despair is kind of on a spectrum, right? And so, so we're not talking about you just get out of bed and you're feeling kind of down or you got up on the wrong side of the bed and you're a little bit grumpy or, you know, things aren't necessarily going that well in your life right now and so you're just generally a pessimistic person. We're talking here about deep, deep sorrow, about despair, about just not wanting to get out of bed at all, you know, or just leaving work because you're done. You know, it's one o'clock in the afternoon and I just can't take anymore, so I'm going home, you know, or just crawling into bed at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and shutting the door and turning out the lights and people just leave me alone because I can't cope anymore. Deep, deep sorrow and unhappiness exists. And whether it's a teenager or a newlywed or a single or a divorced or healthy people or sick or wealthy or poor or unemployed or employed or going through a midlife crisis or menopausal or you're retired or you're elderly, everybody's struggled with this kind of sadness. Virtually everybody's almost untouched by this level of sadness. And we have this increasing problem in our culture with anxiety and depression. And not just in our culture, but it's in our churches as well. And if we don't have a right understanding of Scripture and of suffering and of the Gospel, then mental illness and depression can actually be especially troubling for Christians, right? 
it almost gets amplified or made worse in the church because if we don't understand Scripture correctly, we can be under the false impression that somehow feeling sad is a sin and that we are just supposed to be giddily happy all the time with how amazing God is and that any sadness is somehow a sign of our failure as a Christian. And so the church has a special message here and we have a special or scripture has a message to us as a church and as people that we have to be careful that we're not part of the problem here that we have a misunderstanding and that as a church and as Christians we don't miss the mark of what God is telling us about the human condition and the and the and the reality of sadness and suffering compared to and alongside parallel to joy And so today what we want to do in our series is try to gain a a clearer understanding as much as we are able of of sort of the mental and physiological realities of this illness that can lead to depression and anxiety and, and take a look at what the world offers and take a look at what the gospel offers us as Christians and what scripture says. And I just want to sort of start out here by saying that I am not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm, I'm not dispensing medical advice here today, I'm just a guy with Google, okay? And I have access to the same research and the same information that you all have. But in addition to Google, as Christians, we have something a little more powerful than Google, which is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, and so... Through the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit, which grants wisdom, we're going to look at some of the things that Google says and the world says and see what God has to say in response to that. And so I hope that we can be guided to look clearly at this concern that exists in the world, but also exists right beside us in the church. And I just want to very briefly, as sort of a, an outline, is just sort of talk about some of the causes of... Uh, depression or of anxiety, this crippling depression can come from different sources. And I think it's important that we understand that starting out. And it sort of creates a framework that gives us understanding of the condition that we face. And the first one, uh, dealing with mental illness directly, is that this depression or this crippling anxiety or stress or sadness that absolutely cripples us can come from, first of all, a diagnosable Mental illness, a a physiological or chemical abnormality in the brain or the body that can be measured and has an impact on our function. And this can be something uh, we know, for instance, that if you have your thyroid removed, it can lead to these feelings of depression and melancholy and sadness. Or if you have hyperthyroidism on the other side, or hormonal changes that that women go through after giving birth, or using beta blockers for your heart. We know that people on beta blockers creates chemical situations where we have that feeling of sadness and it can be crippling so there are physiological reasons the other the second thing is is that we know that the feeling of depression especially in a lifelong case of it comes from the experience of trauma especially at an early age but at any age whether it's physical or emotional trauma you have post-traumatic stress disorder Uh, you have people who have been abused either emotionally or physically and throughout their life they struggle with depression and crippling sadness and self-worth issues and anxiety because of situations that happened in their life and we have to acknowledge that that is a place or a source of where these feelings come from but then thirdly and uh, also, very, very importantly, is that it comes from our environment or our cultural conditions. In other words, as a culture, we can be predisposed to these feelings of melancholy and despair and depression and sadness simply because of the worldview of our culture or the things that are going on around us in our life. And what I, what I mean by that is that um, 
we have this situation where there is this epidemic of despair, say, uh, amongst our teenagers and young adults. And when you look at the environment that these people have grown up to in, even if there has been no physiological reason, even if there is no abuse or trauma that would cause this, simply growing up in our culture and being, I would say, indoctrinated into the worldview of essentially nihilism, or of pluralism, can lead to despair. When you are told your entire life that there is no truth, that there is no meaning to life, that whatever one person believes or another person believes is fine, and it doesn't matter what you believe, then basically it doesn't matter what you believe. Nothing is true. Or if you are told that every view is valid and therefore every other view then must be invalid, it can lead to a point where you start to question what is the meaning and purpose of my life. If there is no greater purpose, if there is no right and wrong, if there is no point, then why would I not despair? Or you have the situation in our culture which pushes through the media or through consumerism or even through social media that says this is the level of happiness that is normal and therefore if you don't measure up to this level of happiness, which I will call face bragging, Right, where you go on Facebook and everybody posts on Facebook all the best experiences of their lives, and you say, Well, I don't have a house by the lake, you know, I didn't go on a cruise, my body doesn't look like that, I don't have that much money, I didn't just get a new job at my work that, that gives me all these blessings, you know, I'm not touring the world right now. And so through the social media, we are culturally indoctrinating ourselves into a sense of false happiness, that this level of happiness is normal for the Christian life, and if you aren't this happy all the time, you're failing. And so these are just permeating, or these are just pressures on all of us that lead to situations where people can feel despair and depressed and sad because they can never measure up to the meaning and the joy that the world says that we're supposed to have. So those are just broad categories. And now, when we look to the world, and especially look to the scientific and medical community in terms of how do we deal with this? What is the world's answer to this growing anxiety and this growing despair and this crippling depression that seems to be affecting so many? And we find, in response to this problem of sickness and despair and depression in the world, is really a medical non-answer. They don't have an answer. In 2013, when the the brand new Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-5, came out, it was released. And it's the primary source used in North North America to establish a diagnosis and a treatment and a recommendation and health policy and and drug insurance and all of that stuff. When the DSM-5 was released, a lot of very prominent doctors reacted very strongly against it, most notably some directors and former directors of the National Institute of Mental Health itself. Scientific American ran an article called, excuse me, Mad Science. It's written by Andrew Skull. It's an April 16, 2015 issue. And Steve Hyman, Dr. Steve Hyman, who is the former director of the National Institute for Mental Health, said that the DSM was totally wrong in a way that its authors couldn't have imagined so that, in fact, they had, what they produced was an absolute scientific nightmare. Many people who get one diagnosis get five more diagnoses, but they don't have five diseases, they have one underlying condition. A scientific nightmare is what the former director called the DSM-5. 
Thomas R. Insull, who is the current director of the National Institute of Mental Health at the time, issued a similar verdict saying the manual, he said, suffered from a scientific lack of validity. As long as the research community takes the DSM to be a Bible, we will never make progress. So essentially the medical community is saying we don't have an answer to mental illness and dysfunction and this anxiety and depression and PTSD and all these things. We can, we can see the effect of them, but we have no answer to them. And in private conversation, the director Insull voiced even more heretical thought, it says in the article. He says his psychiatric colleagues actually believe that the diseases they diagnose using the DSM are real. But there is no reality. These are just constructs. There is no reality to schizophrenia or depression. We might have to stop using terms like depression and schizophrenia because they are getting in our way. They're confusing things. Incel is keen to replace descriptive psychiatry with a diagnostic system built upon biological functions. But in the present state of our knowledge, that formula is an idle fantasy. This is 2016 that this is written. Okay, this is not 1950, this is not 1840. This is modern psychiatric medicine. And I don't quote these things. I want to be crystal clear. I do not quote those things to insult psychiatric profession or the medical profession. I certainly do not quote these things to stir up some sort of fear or concern or despair among people who might be hearing this who are under psychiatric care or are in need of medical treatment. I'm not trying to say that you should abandon that. But I do think that we have to look at these things as current as they are and realize that the scientific and medical community themselves do not put great hope in the answers that they hold out to people who are struggling with this and suffering under this. They do not have clear answers. And we have to be honest about the state of our culture and a cultural groupthink in modern Western society with the rise of scientific theory and naturalism that believes, absolutely puts all its hope that science has every answer and that that answer can come in the form of a pill. There is no benefit and no hope to be found in clinging to a false promise and false functional saviors. If you cling to that hope and it lets you down, it only leads to greater despair. So there has to be something underneath this. There has to be an answer to it. And these psychiatrists were just repeating in 2013 and 2016 the same thing they've known for a long time. That in this modern period of trying to medicate every symptom, it isn't working. Joseph Glenn Mullen, he's a research psychiatrist at Harvard, in 2000, this is 17 years ago, I mean it's scary that the year 2000 was 17 years ago, okay? But 17 years ago, he summarized hundreds of studies on the effect of psychiatric medications for anxiety and depression, and his research showed that most of the positive effect comes from a placebo, not from psychoactive ingredients. So he says in his research there's roughly a 20% medical effect of feeling better. There's about a 60% of those that felt better by placebo effect. Just the fact that they took a pill made them feel better, not the psychoactive ingredients. And 20% experienced deleterious or significant negative side effects. Prozac backlash, year 2000 is that paper. And prior to that, in 1998, when Dr. Hyman was then the director of the NIMH, he's the top doctor in the U.S. system. He has all access to all the medical research available. And 20 years ago, he said, 
in a PBS interview, we psychiatrists do not have what the people given to our charge need. Our medications can sometimes take the edge off symptoms, but they cannot give people what they most need. They need meaning and relationship. This is the head of the National Institute of Mental Health 20 years ago saying this. And so we have to understand as a people, we cannot buy into the answer blindly that the world holds out there. The world, the experts in the world don't buy into their own answer. This is a non-Christian doctor who has just said verbatim what any Christian would say in almost the exact same way. That there is always a human heart at the center of the symptoms. And that simply feeling better or simply taking the edge off the symptoms or putting some sort of band-aid over them is not the solution to the root issue. The root issue is meaning and relationship. Meaning in our lives and healthy relationship and not being alone but feeling connected. And so whether you are self-medicating with alcohol and drugs or, or you're being medicated by prescription drugs, they can at best take the edge off. And I don't want to spoil it for you, but maybe you could just be taking a sugar pill instead and be part of the 60% that get the benefit anyway. Or it's actually negatively affecting your life. But you're not getting to the root cause issue of meaning and relationship, which even these doctors see is at the core of the issue. And so what do we do then? If that's the world's answer, what is the Bible's answer? What does Scripture have to say about this? How do we view this? What do we do as Christians when you tell your doctor that you are feeling crushed, that you are feeling depressed, that you are feeling anxious, and it seems beyond your control, it's physiological, it's a reaction that you're feeling, you can't deny it. You can't just you know, read two Bible verses and call me in the morning. We're not denying the reality of the crippling experience of depression. But what do you do when you tell your doctor you're feeling that way, and they say, oh, I've got an answer, take this medication, you'll be fine. What is a, how does a Christian think carefully through when the world says that? And I'm not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not saying that we are not grateful to intelligent, well-done science and the insights that we have into the human body. And there is a place for prescriptions and, and things that can bring us hormonal and chemical balance when it's needed to control and, and those feelings. But a lot of the advertising is misleading. And the world can easily oversimplify and oversell the possibilities. Basically, Western medicine, based out of a naturalistic worldview, has for centuries now gambled that all mental illness and emotional sickness must have its roots in our biology alone. Because biology is all we have. And so the answer must lie there. And what we've seen over the last 150 to 200 years is that that gamble in that guess has not paid off. They have gone looking for the answer in biology on purpose, deliberately trying to find it, and up until this year, still have not found the answer. It is not in our biology. Even as these directors have said, it's in meaning and relationship. Drugs cannot deal with the root physiological issues, or can deal sometimes with a root physiological issue, but they cannot deal with the emotional issues. And so we look at how we come to this as Christians then and what the Bible has to say. 
and how we deal with sadness and how we deal with the human condition that faces us. And as we turn to the Bible, and this is part of the difficulty in preparing for this sermon, is to discover that, in fact, in Scripture, it's hard to find a part of the Bible that doesn't deal with that. It doesn't deal with sadness. It doesn't deal with depression. In fact, when you open up the Bible, you realize that this is the common human condition. And so the first thing as Christians that we take courage in and that we take heart in is that as we turn to God and as we turn to Scripture, He does not sweep under the carpet the reality of sadness and grief and depression and despair. In fact, the Bible, page after page after page, is constantly dealing with this reality of depression. And in fact, very, very quickly, I'll just outline where the Bible anticipates these causes. You remember those three causes that I said, the, the physiological, physical, mental illness or, or physical things, um, the abuse that can take place or the culture that can affect our, our, our sadness or our despair. And the Bible anticipates all three of those things. We can start right in Genesis and see at the fall very quickly that the Bible says that there is a physical brokenness in our world, even as... Um, even as Graham prayed, he said that this world was created perfect, but it's not the way it was meant to be. In Genesis 3, we see the sin of mankind has caused a curse to fall upon our world where now there will be pain and there will be broken relationships and there will even be thorns and thistles in your garden and we will have to work by the sweat of our, bla- our brow that, that ultimately things will end in death and it was never meant to be that way, but the Bible anticipates and God explains to us that we are living in a physically broken world. And so it is no wonder that we are born with conditions and can contract illnesses and that genetically we can be predisposed in certain ways. Our bodies groan, Paul says in Romans 8, subject to futility until we can be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And so this is a reality that the Bible knows about tells us is a reality that we face is that there is brokenness. And secondly, that second cause of depression and illness, that we are not surprised by the reality of trauma and abuse in our world. The Bible faces that head on. You go from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 4, and you run into this guy really, really quickly after the sin enters into the world, this man called Lamech. And it doesn't take long for guys like Lamech to show up in the world says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech. First of all, one wife wasn't enough for him. He wanted more for himself, so he took on more. He says, listen to my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. And so we look at Scripture, and we see the fall, and we see the sin of mankind, and the curse, and the brokenness that's on the world, and then we see that immediately the people like Lamech start showing up that there is abuse, that, you know, if I'm going to get injured, I'm going to kill somebody. If Cain's punishment was seven times, my punishment on anybody against me is going to be 77 times. And you don't have to go very far through, through the news to find the Lamechs of the world, right, that are causing abuse, that are causing punishment. We live in a world where abuse runs virtually unchecked. It's a world of war and of PTSD and of genocide and of human trafficking and of gang violence and of drug pushers. But a lot closer to home, a lot closer to home, people, we live in a world of hot tempers and shouting matches, of physical confrontation in our own homes and 
domestic violence and even more subtly of manipulation and gossip and the destruction of people's reputation and character. And these are the conditions in which mental and emotional brokenness can happen in a person. Where you are subject to this world for so long, you finally just despair and you say, I can't take it anymore. I can't take the character assassination. I can't take the insults. I can't take the degradation. I can't take the abuse. And it leads to despair. And the Bible knows that and anticipates that. And then thirdly, that third cause, we see that Scripture anticipates a culture that will attempt to put its hope in anything that is not God. That that we will, as a people, turn our backs on God and try to worship the created instead of the Creator and say, we've got our own answers, whether it's in medicine or whether it's in wealth or whether it's in power or whether it's in sex. I know I have this lack of meaning in my life. I know that I have broken relationships. I know that I feel purposeless and empty at the heart, but I can band-aid that over. I can get a bigger screen TV. I can get another girlfriend or boyfriend. I can get another set of clothes. I can lose another 10 pounds. I can band-aid this over somehow. Or I can take another pill. And the Bible anticipates that. It says, this is what culture is going to do. It's going to try to solve this problem without me. And it's going to fail. Ecclesiastes says, as I look, this is Solomon writing. The guy had everything. Like literally everything. He says that I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish was also meaningless. Like the chasing of the wind, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. In Romans one twenty one, Paul restates it this way in the theological sense. He says, For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their senseless hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God the glory of the immortal God for images. And that's what we've done as a culture. This is the problem. That the world doesn't have an answer because we are broken physically and we have to deal with that as Christians. We live in this cursed world and we have to deal with the reality of broken bodies and broken minds. That we do live in a sinful society and a sinful culture and sin in our own life that puts pressure and abuse and tension on us and in our families that can lead to despair. And that we live in a culture that idolizes everything except what they should idolize, which is God. And these things lead to sadness. So what is the gospel answer then? The first thing we have to have is we have to have a biblical understanding of the sorrow that all of this leads to, the reality of it. We need to see that within Scripture... The Bible doesn't sweep the human condition under the carpet or try to simply mask over the symptoms of despair or provide only platitudes and cheer. In the nature of God himself and in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ and in his gospel and in all of God's followers that are around us, we find a clear understanding of sorrow and grief and anxiety and despair and suffering and we find its answer. And the first thing is just understanding sorrow, understanding that the feelings of depression, as you look in Scripture, we have to know this, Christian, that the feeling of depression, the feeling of anxiety, the feeling of even despair is not themselves sinful. The difficulty in turning to the Bible on scripture, for Scripture on sorrow, as I said, or on depression, is to find a part of the book that doesn't deal with it on almost every page because sorrow and despair and anxiety are feelings that are common. When we look to the writers of the Old Testament, we realize that like two-thirds of the Psalms 
are written about suffering. They're written, they were songs at the time, so you would say they were written in the minor key. They're about suffering and anxiety and fear and the need for refuge because life is hard. And very often we feel like King David in Psalm 42 where he says, My tears have been my food day and night. And while people say to me all day long, where is your God? How many people have been there? Or just feels like your tears have been your food day and night. And you're in that place. You're in that valley. That's two-thirds of the Psalms. Only a third of them are about praise and joy and everything else. The rest of them are all about sorrow. But in our culture, and this is where I'll come back to our church, as what we have to do as a church in addressing this is we have to understand that, that we can't let our songs and our hymnody and our praise and worship focus exclusively on some sort of giddy happiness before God. Joy and happiness before God is fantastic, but it is not an accurate picture of the, human, of the Christian life. A large portion of the Christian life is understanding that we are in the in-between phase. We are not in heaven yet, and we are in the valley right now experiencing the conditions of death. And so we have to recognize that quite honestly as a church, as a whole church and with individuals. And so it's great to have songs and hymns and, and choruses that come out and they're, they're very happy and joyful, but we also have to have those minor key songs that remind us that this is a journey through sorrow. And we see it all through the Old Testament. You know, like, find me somebody in the Old Testament that is not experiencing this. We see it in Job. We see it in Jonah. We see it in Ruth. We see it in David. We see it in Solomon. We see it in all of the prophets. We see it in uh, virtually any of the judges. You know, as you go through the Scriptures over and over and over again, the people of God and the heroes of God in the faith are people that have struggled deeply with sorrow and with despair. And so we have to understand that that feeling and that state is not in itself sinful. Look at Elijah. I mean, all the great things that Elijah did, he eventually just crawled into a cave and did not come out until he wouldn't even eat. God had to send him an angel to feed him. Does that sound like somebody who maybe is a little depressed? <laughs> right? Crawls into a cave, doesn't want to even talk to God, doesn't, doesn't even want to eat. But God ministers to him. God has compassion on him. So let's be clear here, first of all, is that the feelings of sorrow, of even fearful despair, are not inherently sinful. We can look at the life of Jesus. Just look to Jesus to remember that he was prophesied that he would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, Isaiah says. And over and over through the Gospels, we're reminded of the times that Jesus spent in refuge with the Father in prayer because of the emotional weight and burden on his life. He looked over Jerusalem and wept. He was filled with sorrow and shed tears at the tomb of Lazarus. He faced his own torture and death with fear in his very soul. John 12 says, Now my soul is troubled. This is Jesus. My soul trembles. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. So here's Jesus, fearful in his soul. And we know the sweat and the drops of blood that were coming off of him as he prayed in the Garden of the Gethsemane. So we know that this is not something to be ashamed of. Just the fear of despair and sorrow and depression is not sinful and it's not something to be ashamed of. It's a reality that the Bible and the Scripture faces. Or you can look at the followers of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is talking about him and his band as they're going out doing the ministry of Jesus. And Paul is certainly a man who knows joy. 
He's profoundly joyful, but over and over and over again, he'll say things like this, we have this treasure in jars of clay. In other words, we're still flesh and blood. We're still jars of clay. And we have this treasure, which is the gospel, the joy and the treasuring of Jesus in these jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And why does he say that that will show the surpassing power of God? Because it's normal for Christians in jars of clay to experience what he says next. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying in the body of death, in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And so I, I just want to say here, it's really important that we get this part right. Because I get it, there's people here right now that are feeling like Elijah, you know, that are feeling like Jesus, that their soul trembles, that they go home, maybe you drive home in tears from this service. Maybe you are weeping. Maybe tears are your food day and night. And I get that that's where a lot of you are. Statistically, at least 16% of you, right? And probably more like 40 that at some season, whether it was a year ago or a year from now, but some nearby season, you will go through this, and we have to know that this is okay. That it is not, you're not failing as a Christian because you feel that way. That, that God doesn't hold out to you some sort of giddiness for the rest of your life as, that's, as if that's going to be normal. Not only is it okay and normal, but suffering is something that God has compassion on. I love Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Isn't that a fantastic verse? That God remembers. He knows what's going on here. He knows the weakness of our condition, that the spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. He knows the culture that we live in. He knows the pressures of family and work. He even knows our sinful hearts and the rage and the anger and the abuse that can even come out of us. And he knows the guilt and the shame that we experience because of the trauma or the abuse of others in our past. He knows both our sin and our shame. He remembers that we are dust. And not only does the Father have compassion on our suffering, but Jesus joined us in it. And suffering is a great ministry. But whatever the many purposes of suffering are, we know this, that God himself did not avoid suffering, but that through his Son, he came into our world and joined us in suffering. And in addition to the physical trials of Jesus' life and his beatings and his crucifixion, Jesus joined us in the temptation that comes with suffering as well. Speaking of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet was without sin. And so we understand that despair and, and, and depression is not a sin, but depression is suffering. And suffering is common to all the heroes of God's people. It's common to every one of us. And so as Christians, as a church, we set aside the notion that the Christian life is meant to be one of constant hilarity. 
But that suffering comes in many forms, and suffering itself is not sinful, but it's a means by which the grace of God can be shown. But I do want to be careful there and just take a minute and point out that, that sin and Satan do enter into this. Okay, because this is what we do know about the Christian life and what Scripture tells us. Is that God doesn't hold us accountable and he says, look, your identity and your joy and your meaning and your relationships I'm not going to hold you accountable to and are not dependent upon your circumstances. You are dust and you are fallen and you do live in a cursed world and you are an abuser and have been abused by sin. And you live in a culture that has all of these things and you are suffering anxiety and depression. And those things aren't sin. But what God does say is that how you respond to your environment is something that I bring hope for and grace for. That how you respond to the feeling and how you respond to the culture is where the scripture has much to say. And understand that our enemy will use the culture and use our physical disability and he will use abuse and he will use trauma. Our enemy will use those things to mount spiritual attacks on us so that we start to say things like, well, I'm depressed and so therefore I can put my hope in this or I'm not able to do this because of this. Or my identity is this anxiety. Or my identity is this trauma that happened to me. Or, you know, I get, I don't have to do this or respond that way. Uh, I am allowed to behave differently than others because I've had this different experience. And that's where the Bible speaks to us as well as Christians and says, no, not exactly. You have suffered and you are suffering. But there is a response that's expected out of you, out of that suffering, whatever it may be. And it's no different from mental illness and depression and anxiety and fear and despair than it is for a physical disability, for economic hardship, for relational hardship, for anything else. And so we do have to be careful as Christians that we don't come to idolize the very suffering that God is hoping to work through in our lives. And so the question for the Christian is not primarily, what am I experiencing? But the question for the Christian is, how am I responding? There can be great suffering, but the suffering does not, if it doesn't move out of oneself and towards God, then we're not dealing with that suffering correctly. When you go back to those Psalms that I read, the Psalms of David and the Psalms, those two-thirds of those Psalms that are in the minor key, what you do find when you read those Psalms is that the suffering that the psalmist encounters moves out of himself and moves towards God. He's able to take his heartache, he's able to take his suffering, he's able to take his despair and move out of his own situation and relate himself to God. And whereas depression of any kind, if if the depressed chooses to stay within themselves and never take their hurt and their suffering and move out towards God, then their suffering and their depression will only darken even further by our sinful reaction and unbelief. And so we have the example of Jesus here again in Hebrews 5, 7. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Do you hear that? Jesus, in his life here on earth, offered up prayers and petition with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And so it wasn't about the suffering that Jesus was in. It wasn't about the circumstances that Jesus was in. It wasn't about what he was feeling. He was absolutely feeling crushing despair, the sins of the world. But he took them and moved outward from that to God. 
And so we have to be careful that anxiety and depression are not used by our enemy because they will be used to keep us as Christians distracted from the kingdom work of God. And I don't have time to go into all of that. And that same anxiety and depression will be used by the enemy to try to distract us from the gospel and so that we don't hear that there is an answer from God and that he is caring. But ultimately, we look at all of these things through the lens of the gospel. And I hope this to be a a common theme as we go through this series. Essentially, what we're doing is we're taking these issues, the topic, whatever it is, uh, terrorism or assisted suicide or, um, you know, legalized marijuana or... Uh, what are some of the other ones? Poverty and social justice, uh, uh, you know, gender identity, all these things that are on the summer docket. We're taking all of these topics and we're looking at them through the lens of the gospel. So let me very briefly just come back to that quote from the director of the National Institute of Mental Health who said, we can, we can maybe with medication take the edge off of the symptoms, but we cannot deal with the root issue of meaning and relationship. And here, as you can expect, is where the scripture shines and the gospel shines. Because the message that God has for us in scripture is that he has come purposefully through his son, Jesus Christ, to give our lives meaning and purpose and to rebuild and restore and heal relationships. Those two things that the psychiatrists say they can't deal with, scripture says, we got it. God's got it. You want meaning, you want purpose, you want relationship, look to the gospel. The gospel says that we are made in the image of God, that we have value and worth apart from our success or failure, whether we measure up to the face braggers or not. Whatever our circumstances, whatever our feelings, we are made in the image of God and have value and worth to God. We're loved by God, so much so that before we were born, before we could even do anything on our own, he loved us so much that he sent his son to die on our behalf on the cross, to adopt us into his family, we who were foreigners, far from him in terms of any kind of righteousness or worthiness. And so on the cross, naked and beaten and mocked, Jesus took on himself all the shame of any abuse or action that could have been done to us. And at the same time as he took on the shame of what was done to us, he also took on himself the consequences and the punishment for any sin and abuse that we may have committed against others or against God. And so the gospel says, your life has value and has meaning as a child of God. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we have been called to to be ministers of reconciliation, that we have a purpose, that God doesn't just say, I love you and now come to heaven with me today. He says, I love you and I've come to suffer just as you suffered and I lived and suffered with you and now I'm calling you to live and suffer in the world as I lived and suffered. Remember what Paul said? We are in jars of clay and we bear on our bodies the death of Jesus Christ so that others may see his life. And God gives us that same purpose. He says, I've given you the, mes- the ministry of reconciliation. You, Christian believer, you have purpose in your life. First of all, the knowledge and meaning that you are a child of God loved by him and in his image. And not only that, but in your life you have the purpose of being a minister of reconciling people to God and to each other that you are there to heal relationship, restore what was broken. And I could go to a hundred scriptures on that. Which leads us directly into relationship. It's not just meaning, but it's relationship. Because of what Jesus has done, we're given a new relationship with God. And not only are we given this new relationship with God, which was torn apart and broken by our rebellion, 
But we have a relationship with hundreds and thousands even of new brothers and sisters in the faith. If you're broken and sad and in despair because of broken relationships and abuse, know, Christian, that as you enter into the faith, you enter into a family, you're adopted into a family, you are part of a body, you are a member of a body, you are stones built together into a temple, analogy, metaphor, picture after picture, God paints for you and says, you have new relationship with me and with thousands of brothers and sisters who want to love you and care for you. You do not have to be alone. You do not have to despair. Over and over and over again, God says through his scripture, you belong, you're valued, you're wanted, you have a spiritual gift, you have a purpose. And so for people in despair over the brokenness of relationships with parents or with so-called friends or struggling with loneliness of feelings or of inadequacy because they can never measure up even to themselves or please others or feeling worthless because others reject them, Jesus says, I love you, I desire you, I care for you. And I have right near to you hundreds of brothers and sisters who love you too. And I can heal those old broken relationships. And I can show you the way of forgiveness and reconciliation and of value and of honoring one another. In Mark 10, Jesus is teaching his disciples and he says, whatever you think you've lost when you were turning to the gospel, you will receive a hundred times as much in this present age and eternal life in the age to come. And so what Stephen Hyman saw and what Joseph Glenn Mullen saw and what Thomas Insel all saw through their experience and scientific research is they saw through the lens of science what God has been saying through the gospel that regardless of the cause of depression, it cannot be medicated away. It Rather, you have to deal with the core issues of meaning and relationship and those are the only ways in which this problem will ultimately be treated. But the good news is that is the message that the church holds out. That is the message that God holds out, that there is meaning and relationship that all of us are wired for. Going back to that Psalm of David, Psalm 40, it says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud or to those who go astray after a lie. Blessed are those who turn to the Lord and not those who go astray. And I get it. I understand. I mean, how difficult is it for so many of us to believe that God likes us and God delights in us? Especially when we're experiencing despair and anxiety and depression, we don't even delight in ourselves. And so we marvel and wonder how God could delight in us. But the message of the gospel is that as Christians, we can marvel at the fact that when our Heavenly Father sees us from afar before the foundation of the world. And we're like that prodigal son returning and the father at the head of the laneway. And when he sees us from afar, he has compassion on us and he puts the family ring on our finger and he puts the robe on our shoulder and he kills the fatted calf and he starts the party. And we marvel over the fact that we were wayward and while we were seeking satisfaction in the world and while rather than in him and while we were feeling betrayed and disappointed every time the world let us down our friends let us down whatever let us down all of those times that we were out there seeking to find meaning and purpose in other things all that time god felt compassion and he rejoices when we come home and so don't confuse your suffering with sin And don't respond to suffering with sin. But confront the root causes of meaning and relationship with the gospel. Look through the lens of the gospel. 
This is what we need to do, church and Christians. We need to constantly be going back to Scripture, back to our identity, back to the relationship we have with God, back in prayer the way Jesus did, back to the brothers and sisters around us. And as we restore meaning and restore relationship, then God can ease that suffering and restore you to joy once again. Root yourself in gospel learning. Root yourself, immerse yourself in the word, and root yourself in relationships in the church family. That's what you have to do if you're suffering in this way. The second thing, church, that we have to do is that we have to be have an honest and true reality and understanding of the sorrow of life. We have to cultivate an environment here at Lakeside that makes it easy for people to share their struggle with despair and depression. To not just always paint on the happy face and pretend that if you're sad, you're somehow failing. Because that's not true. And so I stand here today and tell you, if you're sad, you're not failing. If you're sad, we want to know, we want to bear that burden with you. But the problem we have as a church, and I'll just be honest with you, is that we're Canadians. And that we're Christians. We're Canadian Christians. There is no more polite people on the planet than Canadian Christians. And so we do not press into people's lives like that, do we? We are embarrassed to barge in there. But if you're sitting in the audience today, if you're making Lakeside your home, you have permission to barge into each other's lives, okay? And for those of you that are suffering, because you're dealing with Canadian Christians, you've got to open up the door for us a little bit. I'll just, I'll just finish with this one analogy, this one story that I, I just, excuse me, recently heard. Because I want you to get this. And this is important, what we have to be as a church. There's a Francis Chan was doing an interview with a, with a biker gang member uh, who'd been a gang member his whole life. This was later on in his life. He's in his 40s, 50s. And uh, he came to know Jesus. He got saved, baptized into the church. And he was interviewing Francis Chan. Talk, Francis Chan was talking to him. And he said, you know, I was confused about the church. I clearly misunderstood. Because I thought when I joined the church that I was joining a family that was going to be in my face and in my life 100% of the time the same way it was in my gang. It's crushing. And he said, apparently I was mistaken. He found more family and more connection and more relationship with people being in his life and in his business 100% of the time when he was a member of a gang. And when he joined a church, the relationships parted. And he said, I, was, I misunderstood. I thought that's what I was getting into. Now he's still in the church. But that's a commentary for us, isn't it? That we are not in each other's lives as much as we need to be. And so those of you that are suffering, open up your life just a crack. Because us Canadian Christians are really polite and we won't barge in there. And for all you Canadian Christians out there, just get a little bit impolite and barge into people's lives. Okay? Because they're struggling. And they need you there. And that's the gospel. To bring the ministry of reconciliation and healing. Let's pray.